Once again, I invite you to turn with me your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. <clears throat> John, chapter 19. And again, I want to read the verses 17 through 30 <clears throat> as we finish this morning the series of Christ's last words on the cross. Hear the word of God with me. Verse 17. And he, Jesus, then bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam woven from the top to, in one piece. And they said, Therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. <clears throat> Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. And our text for this morning is framed in the verse 30, the last verse. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So far, the reading <clears throat> of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here with me in Salem this morning. For several weeks, perhaps months, we've been standing on Calvary's hill. We've been standing in the shadow of the cross, and we have watched and we have listened as that atrocity of the crucifixion transpired. And we've heard from the suffering Lord words of comfort, words of tragedy, but not so this morning. Today we have the blessed privilege to hear the words of triumph. When he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We heard our Savior's cry of desolation. And in his words, I thirst, we heard of his cry of lamentation. But now in our text of this morning, we will hear his cry of jubilation. It is finished. Oh, a great reversal has takes place here. We have been listening to the words of the victim, but this morning we hear the triumph, the triumphant cry of the victor. 
And I know it almost sounds trite in this context, but it said that every cloud has a silver lining, and that was certainly true for the darkest cloud of all. The cross has two sides. I want to administer God's word to you this morning using it as my simple theme, it is finished. We want to see that the cross shows us the goal of the incarnation, and those words form the basis for our salvation. So it is finished, the goal of, our, of the incarnation, and the basis for our salvation. Congregation, as a pastor, you will understand that during the course of my ministry, I have conducted many funerals. In fact, I did one just two weeks ago. But in many cases, I had opportunities to make a number of visits, both to the home and to the hospital, before that member died. And, and it was not unusual when visiting the home of a terminally ill parishioner to be greeted at the door by a grieving family member saying, Reverend, you're too late. It is finished. And what they meant, of course, was that the suffering of a husband, a wife, a mother, a father was finally over. The suffering was over. The, the, the person had died and the suffering was over. It is finished. Sometimes for months we watched someone we loved hovering between life and death and we watched as they suffered great pain and then finally and yet suddenly it is finished. And when such a death occurs in the home of a Christian family, then these words do not evidence a rebellious spirit. No, this was the will of the Lord and it was accepted as such. However, it was not the will of the family. They would have willed to spare their loved one that those long hours of suffering. And they had stood helplessly by as they watched. And, and they would have willed it to be so different. Helplessly and with resignation, they watched the suffering of their loved one. And then finally, when death finally ends the suffering, with a note of acceptance, sometimes with a note of relief, but also yet with resignation, they say, it is finished. The same words are now heard from Christ this morning. But here they are not words of resignation. They're not words of a helpless family member or a helpless martyr. It was not even an expression of satisfaction or relief that the suffering now at last was over. The, the common interpretation here holds that Christ here cries that his suffering was now finally over. It is finished. But if we think that's what he meant, we would have it all wrong. It was not a cry of relief that his suffering was over. No, it was a cry of victory. Rather, it was, a, it was, the, it was the, the amen, if you will. In his cry of it is finished, he signaled that all that he had come from heaven to do, all that he had come from heaven to do was now done. It is finished. And in its context, now the supreme passion of the cross has ended. The weight of God's wrath has, that had wrung from him the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, had now been lifted. The excruciating torment of body and soul that had brought the words, I thirst, had passed. And after he had been given vinegar to drink, he said, It is finished. But we may not interpret those words to mean that Christ now expresses relief that his suffering was over or finished. No. A much greater work had been accomplished, and that work was now finished. But what then was finished? His body still hung on that tree. Death had as yet escaped him. 
His spirit had not yet left his body. What then was finished? Well, in essence, the essential work of the atonement was finished. He had borne the full fury of God's wrath against the sin of the world. And now all that remained to deliver him from pain and suffering was his death. Oh, not a note of resignation from our Lord. It was a word of victory. He does not cry out here in defeat. The cross was not beyond his control. He was not helpless before the forces of men or demons. No, we remember that he went to the cross that the scripture might be fulfilled and that all things may be accomplished. Earlier as his road to the cross begins, Matthew records for us that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed. He must be raised up again on the third day. And then as we read that, read the narrative, we heard the impulse of Peter. No way, Lord. Oh, no way. Forbid it, Lord. Far be it that this should happen to you, Lord. And then follows the stern rebuke of Christ. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God. Peter sought to prevent Christ from going to the cross because he was not mindful of the things of God. You see, even at this very late hour, Peter still had failed to understand God's plan of redemption. My dear people, God, God had determined that the way of salvation for men and women was that Jesus must go to the cross. But Jesus was not helpless on that cross. He was not defeated there on Golgotha. No, remember again with me once again his own words. I lay down my life that I can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Capture that with me. The concept is important. Jesus was nailed on that cross. Not because he was a helpless victim. Indeed, he was fastened to that tree, but he was not powerless against his enemies. No, Christ was nailed on that cross because he chose to be nailed on that cross. He remained on that cross because he willed to remain on it. Not for one single moment was Jesus helpless, not before those who condemned him, nor before those who had crucified him. All that had happened to him had happened because it had, it had, he had determined it to be so. Only of the Christ can it be said he was the master of his faith. He was the captain of his soul. He had willed it to be so in order to rescue and save fallen men and women like yourself and myself. Try to capture this with me. We hear him say, it is finished. And we now know that men and demons had sought to finish him on the cross. His own had sought to prevent him from going to the cross. Peter would forbid it and God used them all to work out his divine purpose for man's salvation. In order to save men and women, he must go to the cross to that end. And for that purpose, he had come into the world. And to that end and for that purpose, he went to the cross. And now that task was completed. And therefore, he could say, not in resignation, but with great satisfaction and victory, it is finished. In this context now, compare with me for a moment the words of scripture as we find it in the creation account. You know the story. 
On the first day, God created the heavens and the earth, and he divided the darkness from the light. And then we read, God saw it and said it was good. And on the second day, he divided the waters from the dry land, and again we hear God say, it is good. And on the third day, God caused the earth to bring forth grass, herbs, and trees. And again, God looked and saw that it was good. And the same at the end of each creation day, we read, and God saw that it was good. But at the end of the sixth day, we read, God saw that it was finished. The creation was now finished, and it was good. And in somewhat the same way, we are to understand here the words of Christ He spoke them with satisfaction of a work that was good and was now finished. But those who stood around him and the undiscerning reader of the scriptures still asks, what is finished? Peter didn't understand. The company of his peers, the other disciples, didn't understand. They saw only a man nailed on the cross. His body still hung there. The nails were still in his hands. The crown of thorns was still on his brow. The blood still stained his back from the whippings. But so what then was finished? Where was his satisfaction? The unbeliever says, I see no victory here. Indeed, the undiscerning sees only a man. And he sees only what man has done to man. But, but, but the child of God, through the eyes of his faith, sees here what God was doing through Christ for the world. And therein now lies the key. Therein lies the entire key to unlocking the meaning of these words of Christ. It is finished. We can understand these words in no other way than by setting these words in the context of the larger plan of God for the redemption of the world. And to help us understand this, the Apostle Peter writes that Jesus was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. I want to repeat that. Jesus was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And from those words and from many other related passages, we're given to know that Jesus died on the cross with not only the foreknowledge of God. In fact, he went to the cross in accordance with the determinate counsel, or if you will, he went to the cross with the decree of God. God had determined that this would happen. People of God, we come to learn here what is known theologically as the covenant of redemption. The world does not, in fact, the world cannot understand the meaning of a covenant in the biblical sense. To them, to the world, a covenant is simply a contract or an agreement between two parties. It's a, it's a legal document which binds each party to meet certain conditions. In fact, a legal covenant can even force men to act beyond their will or their ability. If a contract or, or, a, or a covenant exists and men cannot or will not honor it, there are consequences or penalties prescribed in the terms of the covenant or the contract. And that's the world's concept of a covenant. But when God establishes a covenant, it is so much different. The covenant of redemption, as agreed upon between the Father and the Son, is far different. When we ask, what then then was the covenant of redemption? The answer is that, The answer is that in return 
for the sinless life and sacrificial death of the Son, the Father would present him with an elect number of people ordained to eternal life through the shedding of blood. I want to repeat that. The covenant of redemption in return for the sinless life and sacrificial death of the Son, the Father would present him with an elect number of people ordained to eternal life through the shedding of his blood. My dear people, God, understand that now well with me and commit it to your memory. The covenant, that agreement between God the Father and God the Son was made even before the world was made. Imagine that with me now, for the, for the, for the very thought boggles the mind. God the Father and God the Son, so to speak, sat down together and they counseled together and they had agreed together to provide a way of salvation for a fallen world. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And as consequence of Adam's sin, all had died in him and with him. And now the Father and the Son agreed to provide a way of return, not for the world, but for those upon whom God would set his particular love, the elect. My dear people of God, if you're able to grasp or to understand this agreement, if you're able to understand this covenant between the Father and the Son, then you will begin to see that the cross was not first erected at Golgotha, no, oh, if it were possible for us to be there when the world was still dark and void without meaning, if we could have been there before anything or anyone had even been created, then we would see that already there, already there, the cross, we would see it there. The Apostle John writes that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Also, Peter writes to the Jews of the dispensation that they were redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. But it was revealed to them in these times. So as Peter points out there, Christ had been foreordained as the Lamb to be slain already before the foundation of the world was laid. But that event was still to be worked out in history. In other words, then the Father and the Son entered into this agreement already in the beginning. More correctly, I should say, even before the beginning, before the foundation of the world. And with the creation of man came the fall into sin. But even before that happened, even before Adam's sin, it was already determined between the Father and the Son that centuries would pass before the Son would enter the human race as a God-man and that he would do so with the express purpose of going to the cross to save a fallen humanity. That now was his work, to save sinners. He must save them from the justice of a holy God who could not look upon any sin. He must redeem unto God a people out of every tribe, tongue, and nation by the shedding of his own precious blood. And because this covenant between the first and the second person of the Trinity had been made even before the world was made, 
Therefore, we now know how it was possible for Christ to explain all the details of the events to come as we heard them from Matthew earlier. Every detail had been discussed and decided. That covenant now was why we read the words in Luke 9 that Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He had covenanted with the Father for the redemption of man. That was the very reason that he had come into the world. And nothing could prevent him from doing what he had come to do on that cross. Every step of the way he walked according to the timetable as it had been set in eternity. And at last the end is in sight. The men and women around him did not know. Even his disciples did not understand. But he knew. All of his life on earth he knew that cross, that cross was ever before his eyes. Oh, see with me now, people of God, how it's all beginning to fit together. Knowing that God had determined the precise moment at which his son would be crucified, then in that context we can now understand why it was that earlier in his ministry Jesus forbids the disciples that they would tell the Jews who he was. In several incidents, we read in the Gospels that Jesus commands his disciples that they don't reveal who he is. That sounds unbelievable to us. It boggles our minds. Why would Jesus want to prevent anyone from knowing that he was the very son of God? And now you know the answer. Jesus Jesus, before, uh, just before the cross, we read now of his triumphal entry on what we call Palm Sunday. Now there is motion and commotion as the Jews, as, as Jesus stirs the crowd into a frenzy. We see children swinging palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, and now Jesus allows the praise. Why was that contradiction? People of God, it becomes clear to us here in this context as we understand God's timetable. You see, earlier when Christ commits the disciples to silence concerning him, it was, it was because his hour had not yet come. Jesus sought to not antagonize the Jews unnecessarily, lest they should become aroused prematurely and they would rise up against him before his hour had come. But now the hour is come, and Jesus consciously arouses their anger, their wrath, through the praises of even, even children. Oh, let them be angry now, for his hour has come. We follow the last few days of Jesus, and we, we see the anger of the Jews increase, and all of it working towards that predetermined climax, the exact predetermined hour. People got to follow with me his last few days. We read in Mark 11 that Jesus went into the temple and we read he looked around. Already he was planning for the next day because on the morrow he returns and he overthrows the table of the money changers. The Jews are incensed and slowly, step by step, Jesus begins to provoke their anger, building up to that climax of Golgotha. And next we read he controls the he confronts the Sadducees about the question of marriage. And then he frustrates them with his insistence that they give to Caesar what was Caesar's. And bit by bit, step by step, the Jews become ever more incensed. Why? 
because his hour had come in accordance with the plan of God. If I may say it this way, it was 10 minutes to midnight on the clock of God's plan of redemption. It was time, it was time, it was time for the cross. The hatred of the Jews would become an instrument to bring about the death of the Son of God. And if we follow that week prior to his death in the scriptures, then we read, then they sought to see how they could take him and put him to death. But not on the feast, they said, lest there be an uproar from the Jews. You see, the Pharisees too had concluded that it was time to eliminate Jesus. But not on the feast, for that might anger the pious among the Jews. And that same evening, Jesus said to the, his disciples, The feast of the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be crucified. Not on the Passover, said the Jews. On the Passover, says Jesus. And on the Passover, he was crucified. Why? Because man would not determine that Jesus would die. And man would not determine when Jesus would die. The hour determined by the Father in eternity had come. The time was now. It had been determined before the foundation of the world. My dear precious people of God. Gird up the loins of your mind and continue to follow me as we now consider exactly the point at which Jesus could say, It is finished. It was not finished when they drove the nails through his hands. It was not finished when they planted that tree on Calvary's hill. It was not finished when the crowd mocked and jeered. No, he must be stricken. He must be smitten of God and afflicted. He must be <coughs> cast into outer darkness. It was only after he had suffered the terror and anguish of hell. Only after he had cried out, My God, <coughs> my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Only then, after having been forsaken by God, only then could he say, It is finished. When at last the darkness was dispelled, when at last the light of the sun again shone down upon the earth, only then could men and women know that the, the plan of God, determined before the world was created, had been brought to fruition. When that plan was done, when the plan of God was all done, then he cried out triumphantly, It is finished. His suffering was finished. His experience of the desolation of hell was finished. He had drunk the cup of God's cup of redemption to his bitter dregs. His work under the covenant of redemption was done. His work of redemption was perfect and complete. It is finished. People of God, most of contemporary Christianity would agree with us when we talk about the sovereignty of God. However, when it comes to the Christ they hold before us, they hold up before us an impotent, begging, pleading, helpless Christ who wants men and women to be saved but is powerless to bring that about unless, unless man chooses to accept or cooperate. But think with me. We hear the words of Christ in John 17. Father, they were yours, but you have given them to me. How? 
through that covenant of redemption agreed upon by the Father and the Son. You see, Christ consciously sets his face towards Jerusalem. Christ consciously determines to allow himself to be nailed to the cross. Christ consciously endures the torments of hell in order to honor the covenant with his Father. And in so doing, he purchases, not with silver, not with gold, but with his own precious blood, he purchases body and soul of every one of those given him by his Father. Ah, dear, dear people of God, don't let the impoverished Arminian deceive you. According to the scriptures, with his precious blood spilled on Golgotha, Jesus purchases the body and the soul of every one of those given him by the Father in eternity. And what that means then is that every soul determined by the Father for whom Christ dies shall be found among the assembly of the elect, among that great multitude that no one can number. It can be no other way. They were given him by the Father before the foundation of the world, and they were bought by the Son here on Golgotha. Therefore it is finished. I have bought them, body and soul, and they now belong to me. They are mine. Oh, many would argue with us. They would have us know that indeed Jesus saves, but they point to the scriptures and they read to us, He that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And then the emphasis they want us to know falls on man's coming to Christ. They tell us a decision must be made by man to come to Jesus. But, but, but read that same text in its entirety with me. It actually reads, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he that comes to me I will not cast out. Why not? The answer is here in our text. Because of the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son, the Father will bring them to the Son one by one out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. He will not cast them out because, because they were given to the Son in eternity. For them he prayed, and for them he paid, for them he died. And when Jesus now cries out, it is finished, he is in fact saying, the salvation of the elect is finished. The salvation of the elect is guaranteed because it is finished. The Lord Jesus says in the Gospel of John, this is the will of the Father, that all of whom he has given me, I shall lose none of them, and I will raise them up on the last day. And then he immediately adds, this is the will of the Father, that everyone who believes in me may have everlasting life, and those I will raise up on the last day. And those two groups, my people of God, those two groups now, those given by the Father, and those who believe in the Son, are one and the same group of people. They are the elect. Think with me then. <coughs> How can one be certain that he has been given to the Son? To answer that question, we need to ask a prior question. To determine if we are indeed safe and secure from all alarm for now and eternity, it must first be established that we are in possession of 
true and saving faith. And now I hear you, I can almost hear you frame the question, how can I know that I am among that multitude given by the Father to the Son before he even created the world? How can I know that I am among the people for whom Christ died? How can I know that my salvation is now guaranteed because of the drama there on Golgotha? How can I know that God accepts Christ's blood in the place of mine? People of God, some people are determined to make a problem where no problem exists. Some people are determined to complicate the Christian faith. They ask, how can I know if I'm truly a child of God? How can I know if I'm indeed one of those given by the Father to the Son? How can I know if I'm among the number for whom Christ cried out, it is finished? Congregation, you can know. You can find the answer to the question. You can find it in the Bible, in the letters of the Apostle John. There we read, herein do we know that we love God if we keep his commandments. He goes on and he says, he that says I know him but keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Answer now that question for yourself. Do you keep his commandments? Is the law of God precious to you? Are they a delight for you as the psalmist writes? Oh, strong words here of the apostle. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you do not keep my commandments, the truth is not in you. And God's wrath still remains on you. Strong words. But they speak to a fundamental fact of a true spiritual life. You see, true saving faith is not a vague, indefinable, emotional feeling. No, the marks of true saving faith can be seen daily in the lives of those who by their faith belong to Jesus Christ. This is the way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, if you not only confess to love him, but if you accompany that confession with an obedient life and lifestyle, then that is evidence of your love for him. It is evidence of your faith, and it affords you the precious assurance of salvation. With faith in your heart, it will be a delight for you to walk, to act, to talk, and to live as he did. People of God, if there be anyone here this day who does not yet know Christ in that way, if there be anyone here who is saying in their heart, I have not kept his commandments in that way, then I have another question for you. It is this. Do you want to know him? Do you want to know and do the will of the Lord? Do you want to know the true peace of the Lord? Then go with me and stand for a moment beside the Philippian jailer as he asks that great, all-consuming question, man of God, Paul then, what must I do to be saved? Hear then the answer of Paul. 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. From that moment on, from the moment you are able to say from a heart born of faith, I know Christ died for me. From that very moment on, you will know that you were given to Christ from eternity to eternity. Know then that you, for you, Christ cried out, It is finished.